Talking back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. I'm Brendan Hansen. And I'm Carly from Gnarly Carly Gaming. What? And this is the podcast about decisions in game. And today, it's going to be a discussion-based episode where we're going to talk about mechanics that make the game. So we all have come prepared with a few examples of games where we think one specific mechanic really makes that game sing. Uh, We've kind of kept our list to ourselves, so it'll be a surprise to all of us what games other people bring forward. Uh, And it should be a great discussion. But before we get into that, so grateful to have Carly joining us on this episode. Carly, thank you so much for being here. Maybe if you want to just take a second to kind of introduce yourself to our audience and uh, let them know who you are, what you're about in this board gaming space. Hi, uh, I am Carly, like I said, of Gnarly Carly Gaming, which is the social media platform I guess I've become most known for. Um, You can primarily find me on Instagram, but I am also on YouTube. And I guess I just kind of stumbled my way into the board game world. I was very much a local gamer. And then I found out that one person had a board game Instagram account randomly. And uh, I bothered them about it. I was like, who are you and what are you doing? And (laughs) they talked to me about board games and it was super joyful. And then they added me on my personal account and I was like, oh, no, we're not doing that. And so then I made one (laughs) and it took off in a really wonderful and weird way. And now I get to do things like be on board game podcasts and talk to people. And too many people care about my opinion. And it's great. (laughs) And that's how I first became aware of you was from your Instagram page, which I highly recommend that uh, off the, in the on the off chance that you aren't already following Gnarly Carly Gaming on Instagram, you should do that. That's how I first became aware of you. Uh, and then I was heading to this gaming ranch and I saw your name pop up on the guest list and we had the opportunity to meet there. Um, and I think we played a game together. You were pretty busy running games of Blood on the Clock Tower, so maybe not as many games as I would have liked. And then I thought this would be a great opportunity. So really, thanks so much for coming on our yeah. show. Uh, the Gaming Ranch, if anyone doesn't know it, is a like game retreat house in Bland, Missouri. And we have a mutual friend who basically invited both of us out. And so we got to meet and game there a little bit. And yeah, I did run quite a bit of blood per request. But I did, <laughs> I did a bunch of things too. But yeah, it was it was very, very cool to be there. Is it actually called Bland, Missouri? Or were it you is. just Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah and to tell Missouri. people, I like, especially since I'm not from Missouri. And so to tell people that I'm going on vacation and they're like, oh, where to? And I'm like, Bland, Missouri. It just, <laughs> it's not a sell. But the Gamers Ranch is amazing. It's really, really cool. Sounds awesome. And I thought you were speaking euphemistically, like Bland, Missouri. Like, you know, oh, no, it's no, like a random no. place. Bland, it's Missouri. Bland. I, I should wow. be very clear about that. The city called Bland. <laughs> amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, happy to. And, and Gamers Ranch, highly recommended from me as well. I actually had the chance to talk to the uh, person who runs the kind of rental property. Uh, they've got like 2,000 board games in their collection. They've got a couple of Calyx shelves that's just like all of the Board Game Geek Top 100 at any given time there. So that's like pretty cool to walk into the place you're staying for a couple of days and just see that. Um, but he said basically... You know, he's a super serious board gamer, but he has had a really hard time getting people to come all the way out to the middle of nowhere in Bland, Missouri to play with him. So he like came up with this basically a ploy of running as an Airbnb to to lure gamers in (laughs) so that he'd always have people to play with and uh, mission accomplished. 
I mean, I respect it. I want my own game retreat house like that at this point, and I'm planning to go back. So yeah, same. Maybe we should move this conversation towards our main topic, which is mechanics that make the game. Brendan, this was your sort of idea for a topic, so maybe you could kind of give us like a little bit of preamble about what made you think of this and kind of like what you had in mind. And then we'll see if Carly and I interpreted that correctly. Awesome. So on our show, so often we talk about decisions and decisions are amazing. And oftentimes we'll talk about those decisions as our sort of lens to explore games. We'll talk about mechanics, but I think that on our show generally mechanics deserve more of a spotlight than they typically get because they're so pivotal. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Because they're so pivotal to our experience of games. And they're so pivotal to our first experience of games, I think. So often, memorable mechanics uh, are the things that imprint on our experience. Even if a game offers really interesting decisions, it's oftentimes the mechanic that's making us remember those interesting decisions as much as the decisions themselves. So I think for too long, we've ignored interesting mechanics. And it's time to put them in the spotlight (laughs) with this episode. And it's also a great excuse to talk about awesome games that we enjoy that we might not typically. Uh, So that's really what I was hoping to do with this episode. So in my mind, mechanics that make the game are like, this is an awesome game with this really cool novel mechanic that I had never, uh, that I experienced first through this game, or that like, this game would be okay without this mechanic, but this mechanic makes this game awesome. That's like what I was really going for. How How are we doing? Did I... Did I lead y'all astray? No, I think I think I'm okay with the like mechanics that make the game interesting. Um, awesome. I don't know if I like sat down and was like, "This is novel and I've never seen it before," because I feel like I've seen every single mechanic before. It's just how it's used that and it becomes special. Perfect. I think I overspoke. I think that's sort of what I did to more uh, sort of your angle, Carly. I I kind of had a little bit of trouble sitting down and thinking through picking out three games where I feel like one mechanic rises to the surface. And I think because I'm such like a, a point salad Euro game player that a lot of my like favorite games just have like eight different mechanics that all have exactly equal weight. Like if I think about like Castles of Burgundy or like a Stefan Feld game, like none of those for me like really sang for like, it's this one thing. It's like all of these things coming together that makes it so magical. No, I was going to say, when I thought about it, I thought the exact same thing, except I wanted games that had multiple mechanics. And then there was like one that would, I think, like really made it stand out more so. Um, And so I was trying to, like, I didn't want to pick something that just was one mechanic. Because then it's just like this game of like, oh, yes, this has only one thing happening. (laughs) This is the game we're talking about. So I actually tried to be like, okay, like, what is it about uh, this game that is really satisfying to me? Like, which mechanic does it? And so... We'll see. We'll see what we come up with. I guess we'll just start rambling about games and it'll be fine. Yeah, I think that's the idea. So, all right, Brendan, maybe why don't you go first, kick us off with your first example, and then we'll really know if we've hit this right. Okay, well, whatever y'all do will be right. And if I, you know, like, whatever. Also, somehow I knew, somehow I knew Castles of Burgundy was going to come up. And I thought literally, what if Jake just says the worker mechanic from Castles of Burgundy? That's really what makes that game. But I'd be honored to go first. Uh, I think that for me, the game that first came into mind, and it's been almost a year since we talked about this game on the show, so I was just looking for an excuse to return to it, is the scoring mechanic in The Fox in the Forest. So The Fox in the Forest is a trick-taking game for two players. Um, and on on its surface, that's that's interesting, that's cool, but what really makes this this game work, in my mind, is that you're either trying to win zero to three tricks 
or you're trying to win seven to nine tricks out of 13 tricks in the game. So whenever you're dealt a hand of cards, you're, you have to figure out, am I trying to win tricks or am I trying to lose tricks? Without this mechanic, you it there would the whole game would lack this really interesting tension between is this a winning hand or is it a losing hand compared to my opponent's hand? Um, and of course, the the novel thing about this mechanic is because winning tricks caps out at nine, you can go over. And if you go over, you are deemed greedy by the game and you get no points for your efforts. Um, so I think that really, in my mind, the fox in the forest scoring mechanism just like brings this whole game that springs to life. And it makes it such that when you're dealt that hand, you have this core question where you can really study it uh, and think about mechanically, like, what what am I going to do with this? And in the first three, four, five hands, you're sort of saying, oh, I did this completely right. And it feels wonderful. Or, oh, I did this completely wrong. How am I going to get out of this colossal mess and try to survive for next round? You've said that so elegantly. And all I can think about is when I'm the person who's deemed humble because someone else takes all that trick. And you know, you're sitting there knowing with your like shit eating grin that they're like happy about winning those tricks. And you know, it's going to be like their ultimate demise. Like they think they're doing well. So like you said that in a very elegant way. And to me, I'm like, yes, it like I feast off of it. I love when someone else is just like, I got this. I'm like, yes, you do. (laughs) And it'll be my victory. (laughs) Totally. Best moment. I think it's a nice example too where like the just the very very subtle theming of just even calling it greedy versus humble adds such a richness to the play i don't know maybe it's just me but like winning as the humble person and just like absolutely lording that name over your opponent like maybe that's why my wife won't play this game with me anymore she won't play with you anymore we would play this game a lot. It would go back and forth. And then I think I like did start like getting the advantage and winning a few more times in her. So then like kind of our like competitive balance as a couple was thrown off. And I'm sure if we kept playing more, then she would be able to overtake me as she so often does in games. But that one in particular, and maybe it's because of lording the humble designation over. Yeah, we don't play it much. Oh, I got it. I'm just always so as a side topic, I'm very fascinated about the games that people won't play anymore and why that's like a whole other ball game. But I just I find like this one so casual and light. Like, yes, there's those like peak moments and it can definitely feel bad to like give someone that humble victory. Um, but like it's such a chill game. <laughs> so like I just wasn't expecting that one. <laughs> but when you're playing it, like there's that like moment where you're like, oh, I'm doing so great. And then you realize you're like falling into the greedy yeah. thing. And it's like your stomach like drops. You're like, oh, no. I guess I, I, I think I'm a decent loser. Mm. <laughs> I think that's why I can handle those things okay. But <laughs> I don't know. I can, right, well, I, can, I can understand it. Carly, would you do the honors of maybe giving us your first game where a mechanic makes the game? Do you know the, do you guys know Tiny Epic Galaxies? I'm familiar with the Tiny Epic line, but not Tiny Tiny Epic Galaxies specifically. So in Tiny Epic Galaxies, uh, there's a mechanic that's a follow mechanic. So you basically are rolling and like utilizing different actions in different ways, but whatever you utilize, if someone has follow, which you basically can like build up, um, they can basically copy any of your actions. Um, and so I think that is a core mechanism because it's something, it's a, it's a resource you have to manage for yourself and decide if you're going to build up in that way or build up in other ways that could be a little more aggressive. Um, but it does mean inherently no one can take an action and like fully block you out of it because you can kind of counter them even on their own turns. It also keeps everyone kind of more involved and present through other people's turns. Uh, it can have that counter effect that if you're someone who wasn't able to build that up, that it can be difficult, but it's uh, it was just a really, really cool mechanism and tr- that's kind of at the heart of that game. That one's a little more on the nose, but uh, I find that 
yeah, I, I think the whole idea of being able to duplicate and pay attention to other people's actions and what they're going for and kind of plan your own strategy around it is a really cool thing to have in a game. Yeah, that's awesome. Like you might not pick an action because someone else is going to benefit more from that action. So you have to like figure out how to pick the right action that's going to benefit you the most without allowing everyone else yeah. to sort of lose. Or maybe off, yeah. I'm going, I want to do something, but I also recognize that you probably are going to do it. And yeah. if I have the follow, then I can kind of like go ahead in other capacities or like plan mm. for your turn in a really interesting way. Sure. Um, I think it works best. Like, it, yeah. So I, I just, I find that mechanism to be a really cool one. Um, I like, I love, I love games where I have to be kind of aware of people's board states for my own resource management or totally. turn like like strategizing <clears throat> and i'm sorry because i'm not familiar with tiny epic galaxies um okay. but is that a game where like you could take the follow action on any of your turns or do you have a limited like number of i'm thinking of like i think there's a a game i really like called like transatlantic there's like a card that allows you it's like a hand management game and you could play a card that's basically like your one opportunity to copy anybody else's turn that they played so you're limited because it's a resource more or less that you'll build up and that you like okay. spend when you want to follow someone's actions. So you don't want to just do it every turn. You're not going to be able to do it, which is why I like, think there is times in which like uh, the time I will go to the bathroom is like, oh, I have no, no ability to follow anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I will pee now because <laughs> I need to. Uh, because otherwise you kind of want to be present during everyone's mm -hmm. turn to kind of because essentially they'll get to do an action. And everyone kind of has the choice to copy it if they're able and then it kind of moves on. Um, and so it's probably a little more in abundance. I have not played your example, which does not help. <laughs> but that, that yeah, so that was that was my first one. I'm trying to think, do you know any other any other games that have like a really strong like follow another person's turn? I mean my mind immediately went to like, you know, games like Race for the Galaxy where it's like yeah. somebody does it and everybody has to do it. But like as you're describing it, right, where you can just like choose to do it mm -hmm. every once in a while or only so often. When it's the when it's actually advantageous to you, yeah. not like a command as much as a choice. Yeah, um, I think, I think yeah. it's kind of novel and cool. I think it's cool, too, that both these games, we'll see if this trend continues, have these sort of like tense moments, it sounds like, where you declare this action uh, in Tiny Epic Galaxies and then you wait to see if people are following, maybe. Like I could imagine declaring my action being like, is anyone following? Well, and, <laughs> and, and then, there's things you know? in the game that you're actually like trying to claim planets and do certain things and mm. like ability. So sometimes I'll be like, ah, it's like I don't want them to do that then because then they'll be able to do this. And the turn order matters a lot in that regard. And yeah, it can be, it's, cool. it's a really little cool small game. I was thinking of it because I'm packing Sounds it for sweet. my trip tomorrow because it's just a nice little small box. It's probably awesome. my favorite of the tiny epics. All right, well, I'll give my first game now, and the game I'm picking is a game I've always wanted to cover on this show, but uh, it's kind of a difficult one to cover as we typically do on Decision Space, and that is Arkham Horror, the LCG. And the mechanism that I particularly love about this uh, living card game is the bag-building element of it. So this is basically a cooperative game which is also a bit different uh for me i'm typically not a huge cooperative gamer so i was trying to think through like what uh like why does this cooperative game stand out to me so much and i think it is because of this bag building element so essentially the way the game works is it is a series of skill checks um so you'll play as a character um, and you'll have different items and weapons. So you'll have a flashlight that you can use to investigate, or you'll have uh, a machete that you can use to fight. And anytime you want to perform any action, you have to dip your hand into the chaos bag. 
and the chaos bag has all of the like result modifiers. So right, like instead of rolling a die for the skill check, you'll pull out from the bag and it could be like a plus one. So it's like giving you plus one, you know, investigate to this, to this uh, search, or it could give you like a minus two to your fight. Uh, Or uh, there are like special symbols that come up in the bag where, uh, where it can have all kinds of different effects depending on the scenario you're playing and then maybe like the super like the special sauce is that there's one single uh chit in the bag that is like your ultimate auto like ultimate power like super succeed uh, that allows you to like activate your player's unique ability and there's one automatic fail like in any circumstances so it just makes you know, it just fits so perfectly with the theme of the game, which is like this like Arkham, like super dark, like super, uh, you know, bad stuff happening where it's like most of the things in this bag are bad. Um, so it just fits so well with that. And it just creates like such tension. Like every time I dip my hand in the bag, I feel like gen- like it's the closest approximation of like the emotion of like fear that like you get like watching like a horror movie like you know games don't really scare you in the same way but like when you're everything you've been doing for the past hour and a half is building up to this like one opportunity to succeed and you're like oh man i might draw that auto fail even though i've given all my resources to to achieve this it's like such a delicious thematic moment and also the way you can like modify the bag as you go through scenarios things change it's just like the perfect mechanism for this game system what is wild to me is so I'm going to slightly insert one of mine here because it's relevant. Um, but I did bag building on one of mine and it was Wonderland's War. And all of the things that you just talked about were how it's like this perfect fear mechanism. And to me, I'm like, it's the perfect whimsical mechanism. <laughs> like, like That's why I love it in Wonderland's War because I'm like, woo, like madness. <laughs> and that was like my whole explanation. And so I, I'm interested because I guess what I was uh, interested when I was thinking about the bag building is like so interesting is really you could do the same thing with a deck of cards. That's kind of what mm-hmm. like Gloomhaven does is it has like that you shuffle your cards and you reveal them. But there's something about bag building that just adds a different like level of like choice feeling to it that apparently can be whimsical or scary <laughs> depending on the theme. Obviously, it's essentially the same as if you were to shuffle a deck and flip one off the top every time. But like, it feels like you have agency because you're the one, like, even though you're choosing blind, like, you're still like choosing the thing in the bag. And also, like, whenever I play the game, like, I I have just like a, you know, a drawstring bag and it's hard to like, it feels hard to mix them sometimes. So sometimes I feel like, oh, like, it's the same negative four. Like, I keep like drawing the negative four. Like, I can't get it to the bottom of my bag. I don't know. (laughs) No, no, I get And like, I I guess for the people who don't know the game, Wonderland's War is a competitive game. It's a bag builder and it's like Alice in Wonderland themed. And you're basically battling for control of Wonderland as all these things. They are special character abilities. There's all basically it's the same thing, except (laughs) very light and like playful, whereas yours is very like serious. (laughs) And I, I, I like how it works so well for both because it is that kind of sense of like, it's both agency as well as... Uh, for me, it's like a just enough chaos that I don't feel like too terrible about it. But maybe I would in the situation of Arkham, whereas Wonderland just feels ridiculous. I don't know. I'm not sure how like the same thing could do such different feelings. Are there auto fails in Wonderland's work early? Um, where you just like lose the yeah? So you can go mad, which oh, okay. uh, yeah, or, yeah. or you can uh, which actually brings your stuff back. But if you pull madness, you have to kill people 
that are with you in battle. And if you ever run out of people in mm. battle, then you are out um, of that battle. So you kind of have this, you you keep pulling in Wonderlands, which is a, like a difference. It's not like you keep pulling till everyone just either you decide sure. to stop or keep going. So I guess that's why it's a little more playful is you have this kind of like push your luck element to it. Um, yeah. But yeah, you can fail. Um, and I usually do. Every single game that I've ever played of Wonderlands War, I'm like, decimated and it's because i think i push my luck a little too much but also i have terrible luck i'm just but i i love it it's very playful and fun to lose all the time i think another just interesting difference so in wonderland's war you're building your own bag right yeah so you have like a custom one that's based on your character and then you can evolve it over time as long as you get special abilities and stuff like that just to draw the distinction so in arkham horror card game it's a shared bag that like everyone is drawing out of through the campaign so that's just another cool thing that shows how like well that mechanism can work uh differently in a cooperative versus competitive game like in arkham horror if you make some horrible choice in your campaign that tells you you have to like drop this other terrible piece in your bag from now forward it's like man that's gonna that's gonna be bad for everybody forever (laughs) yeah (laughs) just forever Yeah, no, I just, I think it's a, a great mechanism. And it was just so cool to hear you to start to talk about it when I thought about it completely differently. <laughs> All right, Brendan, well, let's throw it What's over your back to builder? you. Yeah. <laughs> what are you I, contributing I to this part of the discussion? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go into a builder that can invoke fear and whimsy. Okay, hit us. And a little bit of, hmm, what's the, what's the other adjective that I'll use? Because I need three. Uh, fear, whimsy, and... Uh, Without knowing the game, I can't help frenzy. you. <laughs> Frenzy, a frenzied state of zaniness. Have either of you heard of or played the game Team 3? No. That's the one with the monkeys on it? Yes, it is. (laughs) Okay, so Team 3 is a building game in which it's also a cooperative game, Jake, and you have these pieces in front of you that are 3D objects, and most of them are tetronomos, so like, uh, you know, like tetra shapes, right? They're all polyominoes, though, that you might have the little three uh, so like a short L or a longer L or the cross, just all these different shapes of different colors. And the thing about this game is that you're playing as the three monkeys. So one of you uh, can't talk, one of you can't see, and one of you is building. I don't know. Wait, what's Can't the... hear, but is otherwise can't... perfectly suited for the game. Yeah, yeah. Can't hear. <laughs> right. One of you can see, one of you can't talk, and one of you is blind. Okay. That, we'll just say that. Wait, and what? One of you can't see yeah, and one of you is blind? Yeah, wait. Okay. <laughs> let me let me back up. <laughs> I'm losing the thread. So you're trying to build. You're playing as a monkey building company where you're building these, sh- uh, these complex shapes out of these blocks. So one of you is playing a monkey where you get a card and you see exactly mm. the structure that you're supposed to build. I see. So you know, like, these shapes have to be in the bottom, followed by these shapes. And that person has to instruct a second player how to build that, except they can't talk. All they can do is signal with their hands where different shapes should, can go. The second player can talk, um, but they can't see, right? They're going off what they can see of the shapes that the person's drawing, but they don't actually get to see the card. And the third person, their eyes are closed and they're the one actually building the structure. So they're feeling around on the table, grabbing at different shapes, trying to grab the right ones and actually construct these structures. So my mechanic in this game that makes the game is the fact that it's, it's all three of those things, right? That everyone has this completely different role and that you can't talk or see in some cases. Are you competing? 
there's a variant. This game was sold with two different boxes. Uh, there's the pink box and the green box, and they're essentially the same game. Each of them comes with a little micro expansion uh, that's sort of an add-on, and they are different and interesting for their own right. Um, but you can get two sets, and you can do a competitive mode where this team of three people is playing against this team, but with just one box, you're playing cooperatively against a timer. So you, you also have this added stress of you have to finish this structure within this given time. And there's... You can scale up in terms of difficulty too, where you have these smaller structures and you build up and up. Um, and one thing I love about this game is I've played it with non-gamers and gamers alike, and it, it's always worked and created this really sort of frenzy environment. I've played for a while. I was bringing this game around with code names, and it's sort of like the game that I would play at family gatherings. Like, oh, it's Thanksgiving. Let's play code names, and then let's play Team Three with the three people uh, who stay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. If the three people like you get to stay. Well, we don't have full teams for code names anymore. Yeah. Nice. Um, but it's just a really interesting game that I think uh, flexes different muscles and has that sort of memorable mechanic of everyone's coming at the same task from completely different directions. I love that example. And it also just makes me rethink my entire list because it's so like off the wall. It's like, dang it. Like, I should have picked like disc golf and how like the mechanism is that like you have to throw the disc and they fly through the air. I feel like you're saying I cheated. No, I'm... Party game. No, <laughs> I'm joking about disc golf, but I'm totally yeah. sincere in how like that's just like one of like the amazing things about games in general is like the, the yeah. limitations that they put on us that make an otherwise simple task like challenging and therefore fun. And I don't think it like gets much simpler than like and you have to play with your eyes closed. Yeah, or you have to draw these shapes with your fingers and say where they're supposed to go somehow. Um, it's really fun. Again, that game is Team 3. Who's next? Wait, Carly, you're next. I'm next? Oh, I mean, I kind of interrupted with one, but I can be next. Um, okay, I'm going to do a very simple one, but I think it still makes it to me. And you can play without it, and that's and I never would want to. And that's why I think this mechanism is glorious. Um but I was going to talk about Nemesis and the hidden traitor mechanic, which I always loved. Have you guys played Nemesis? I have not, but I am familiar. Do you with know that Nemesis? One. Never. You don't know Nemesis? I know. No, okay. no, I know Nemesis. I've never played it, but I do know it. Alien simulation game, essentially. Basically, so it is. Uh, yeah, it is aliens. They're uh, intruders on the ship and all of those things. Um, but you all have a personal objective card. Um, that will tell you something you need to do in addition to just survive. Everyone wants to survive. Most people want to go back to Earth, but there's other ways you can survive without going back to Earth, like a skate pod, things like that. Um, but there are hidden objectives that are traitor objectives where you want, for instance, the whole ship to go to Mars, which would kill everyone who has the objective to go to Earth um, or things like that. And so what this does is we're all cooperatively trying to make sure like all of our engines are going as the coordinates are set, but you inherently don't trust people people get to choose which one they do. And I feel like very rarely do I see a lot of people go for the trader objectives, but this underlying tension makes you all waste time. And in this game, most people die. Whenever <laughs> I play, most of us die. Um, and so, and part of that is because of the tension of the hidden trader. Like I've, I've actually met two people, strangers from the internet. And the first thing we did was play Nemesis um, when they were like, hey, I'm relatively local and want to play games with me. And I'm like, yes. Um, and we played Nemesis. And within like 10 minutes, I was calling someone a piece of shit because they were <laughs> going to check the coordinates. And I was like, you're not checking the coordinates. Like, you want to go to Mars? Like, I don't trust you at all. And then they were actually indeed good. And I carried them to safety at the end of the game. And I think it was very bonding and cool. But they also tolerated that. And there's like, there's something to be said for that, like tension and like 
I don't know, playfulness that just derives from that tension and the different kind of decisions that you make. So I think Hidden Trader could be a very cool. I like Hidden Trader as a potential, not a guarantee sometimes, um, because there's always the chance that no one's trying to hurt you. And that's cool, too, uh, if you can sort it out. It's so experience. It's so much fun to experience doubt in someone when you shouldn't have ever doubted them in the first place and learn that at the end of the game. Yeah. So I feel like so often these hidden trader like games, like the resistance, right? So classically explores the opposite side of that interaction. Um, and I feel like what you're saying, Carly is so perfect. Not enough games get to, you get to explore the other side where like, Oh no, they're not the jerk. I'm the jerk forever doubting them in the first. Well, time. And in that game, there is a choice. Usually if you want to be a trader, you get two yeah. goals in the beginning. Inherently one of them might be a trader, but not, you might get none that are trader and then you pick one. Um, and so people have agency, whether or not they want to go that pathway and they can do it if it makes sense. And they also don't have to decide right away. And so there's this, uh, I think hidden trader with the, done that way is really nice because I can look at it and be like, Hey, you know what? Like, screw them all. I'm going to do this. It's more fun. And sometimes the hidden trader is like subtle. It's like, I'm just going to get a bunch of stuff and hop on an escape pod. And I don't care if any of you guys, like, I don't need you to survive. Um, but one time I had a goal that was like a best friend goal. And it was like, you and someone else need to survive together. So I looked at someone and I was like, do you, do you want to like be friends? Like, do you want to be buds and like stay together and survive? And they picked the goal that was to kill me in particular. Which you don't have to do. Not all the trader goals are that mean. Some of them just want like weird things. But they were like, all right, you're going to hang out with me. I'm going to kill you. (laughs) They tried to trap me in a room with fire. And I just wanted to be friends. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So So, that's awesome. I guess theoretically, though, you might be dealt a hand as two trader cards, right? No. No. So there's two different types of trader cards that you you get one from each. They're like business and personal. And so only one of them can ever possibly be a trader card. Okay, that makes sense. I actually know this specifically because I used to play that wrong, in which case people did get two trader cards. Um, But actually, even most trader cards have two options on them. It's just straight get to earth as an option or the trader side of it. Uh And so you're always playing with, almost always you have to pick one card, but you usually still have a non-trader option in in hand, uh, even with a trader card. I'm totally fascinated by this like option of choosing whether or not you want to be the trader because like in so many of these games that I played that have a trader like that can be like emotionally a little bit like real sometimes right like if you're like lying to somebody and they really trust you and then at the end of the game you're like yeah sorry I was lying to you the whole time like they might yeah. you know it's a game like it's a magic circle but you might need to do a little bit of like aftercare yeah, with someone and- this game's way less social. Like, I don't yeah. really have to tell you if I'm good or evil or if I'm going to hurt you. You're probably going to figure it out based on my actions, my actions alone, and your actions are just going to have to start be paying attention more to me and make sure I'm not sabotaging stuff you need. Um, and so it doesn't feel as, um, I mean, trapping me in a room with fire, like, that's personal. But uh, <laughs> a lot of them, a lot of them don't feel nearly as personal. And it's mm-hmm. less me like looking at you as a player and being like, you have to believe me. And it's more like that engine sure is working. And then you're like, I'm just gonna check it. Like, <laughs> like I just don't trust you. And and so it might be a waste of your time, but I can probably win without you. So I, my thought cool was just that like, if, if somebody was lying to you, and like, right, there's if like you're if you're being betrayed by somebody and they like actively chose to be someone like betraying people like that yeah. almost makes it like more cruel in some ways. I don't know, but it, it's just really cool, especially when you can like situationally be like, this is going well for me. I'll go for that thing. Like, like I don't yeah. know. Um, 
Yeah, next time we're Gamers Ranch, we're playing. Oh my yeah. goodness, I can't that believe you never great. played Nemesis. It's so yeah, good. I, I would so love good. to. And I, I think like, I love that you're calling out like the hidden traitor mechanics. I think that's such like an awesome thing that board games can illustrate to people. Like I just, I like think everyone in the world should play The Resistance just to like have that experience of like, people are accusing you of something and you're innocent, but everything you're saying is just making you sound more guilty. Like, I feel yeah. like that's like an important experience for people to like have just to be like more complete humans. I don't, I don't know, but I will say even if someone <laughs> doesn't like the resistance, this game does not rely on that social lying. You just don't have to yeah. really. Um, and you can always choose not to. Um, and so if someone's like, I don't like social deduction, I wouldn't take nemesis. I wouldn't say nemesis is something they shouldn't try. Awesome. And so I would I would definitely try Nemesis That's if you awesome. haven't. It's rated well for a reason. It is delightful and the minis are awesome. Well, that They were actually the first minis I ever painted. Oh, so cool. Well, I I will also uh invoke the Gamers Ranch and talk about a game that I played for the first time at Gamers Ranch. Unfortunately not with you Carly, but it was, you know, just one of my absolute favorite designers everybody knows, Reiner Knizia. Uh, and <laughs> it was a fantastic game, Raw. Um, and so I, I was actually introduced to this game first with The Priests of Raw, which if you're not familiar with The Priests of Raw, it is essentially a re-implementation of Raw. Uh, Raw being an auction game where uh, a display of tiles is being flipped up on a central board and every once in a while on your turn, you can flip up a new tile or sometimes a tile will come out of the bag that just triggers an auction that takes place immediately. And Priest of Raw works the same way, but just the tile sets are, are different. Um, and the mechanism that really just totally blew me away about this game was the way that the bidding tiles work. So you have a set of three bidding tiles that are three different numbers. And those are the only things that you can use to bid with. I think they're numbered like one through, I think it probably depends how many people are playing, but something like one through 19 or something like that. Um, and so you, you have three of them. And at the very start of the game, like the first uh, bid that takes place has the number one tile uh, that is a part of the auction. So if you win that tile, with, or if you, sorry, if you win the auction, whatever bidding tile you used uh, to play will go into the next auction and you have to take the one back into your hand. So it has just like this, in, in effect, it makes it so that like not only are you playing uh, an auction, like a very like straightforward auction game but you're also doing this like hand management system where every single auction over the course of the game like you have to really carefully consider like what number from your hand of tiles that you're, you're giving up in order to get what's in the middle uh, and it just creates like this really interesting richness uh to each bid um because the tiles you end up with you have you will use those in the next round uh, and so on and so forth. And then even that carries through the very end of the game where uh, if you have the lowest number of total values of your auction tiles left, then you get hit by like a massive negative point. So you really have to pay attention to that throughout. I just thought like having that one sort of um, mechanism that carried throughout this game 
was something that like when I learned this game, like I instantly was able to really like cling to. Uh, and, and I just found that puzzle just completely delightful and just like opened up in such interesting ways throughout the play. So we played Priest of Ra and then I like sort of was like, all right, I'm trying Ra. So we played that the next night as well. Uh, and it was, it was definitely my game of the weekend. And I really want to play it more in the future. So jealous. I wanted to play. I was trying to get in on one of those games and wasn't able to. Is the mechanic that makes the game there, Jake, specifically the swapping of tiles? Is yeah, that, I, yeah, yeah. And I think I kind of didn't say that super clearly, but yeah, I think it's the it's the swapping of tiles, the way that like they are a core part of the actual like things that you're winning in the auction yeah, so is one cool. of these tiles, and that it carries through to the very end of the game. Like that was sort of like the last rule. It's like, oh, and also you have to care about these. It's not like these tiles just don't matter going into the last round. Like they actually matter a ton. And it's like this like super determinative thing in determining like the ultimate winner of the game. I think you get a bonus if you have the best hand as well. In a negative, you have the worst hand. Okay, one, I'm so happy that I wasn't the one who had to first bring up Kinesi on the podcast. Just makes me happy. Well done. I felt, well done. I felt like... I'm surprised that I'm the first because I think so many of his games kind of like fit well in this category of like one mechanism that makes the game like. I admit I could have done a list of just Kinesia games, but decided not to because I felt like I didn't want to just be that guy, which is the guy I always am. But um, (laughs) in Raw, what's so cool is so often his mechanics that make the game are like all of the game is pushing this one direction, right? Where like, how do the tiles just not escalate to the point where oh, that's a really valuable tile. I'm going to bid even more and it's going to build up and up and up to the point where, oh, everyone's bidding their whole hand because you just want access to these amazing tiles in the center. But then the mechanism that like makes it, it's like, oh, I actually want to have a good hand left at the end. And if I only have low tiles left, I'm in trouble. Like that, that to me is just like, oh, he's so good at that where it's like the whole game is pushing this direction and this one mechanism pulls you all back and makes you pay attention. So good. Look at us, a podcast, a board game podcast where we're extolling Kinesia, forging new ground. <laughs> Super original. Who is this designer of which you speak? Little, little known German designer, actually. Okay, am I up? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think so. It doesn't really matter. You're going to do awesome. it. Awesome. Well, I, for this one, I felt long and hard and I was going to do a Kinesia game, but instead to bring balance back, I'm thinking of a game with simultaneous choices. And I think that it's a game where this one piece of simultaneous choice makes the game what it is. And if it didn't have this element, it would be an awesome game that existed that people didn't play anymore. But I think because at the end of every round of El Grande, players have these tokens, these cubes that come out of the Castillo. Uh, It completely shifts every decision that you make in that game and reframes all decisions in such an interesting way that for me, that simultaneous choice makes this area control game and makes it one of the best area control games of all time. So wait, Carly, you're shaking your head. Have you played El Grande? Nice. Awesome. And I know Jake has. And I played it on the table for the first time at Gamer's Ranch. Wow, this is just like totally the Gamers Ranch episode. I love it. I didn't even know I was participating in that. That's amazing. For for people who don't know El Grande, it's an area control game. You're putting your cubes out on the board, trying to have more cubes than other people and all these different territories on the board. Um, So basically, as you take these different rounds, you're building up cubes, building up cubes, trying to mass points, but you're also maybe sneaking some cubes slowly into this little Castillo on the side. 
uh, where you could count what goes in, but just like pretend you can't. It's this hidden box of information where at the end of the round, all this new information gets barfed onto the board and it changes everything and reinforms. It's this like kinetic potential of excitement of what could happen. Um, and then at the end of the round, you all have these hidden dials where you set where, where your cubes will go. So you don't have perfect information about what your opponents will do. And like Carly said, you have to think about what other people might want to do. And then, you know, they're thinking about what you want to do. And it's just this perfect mechanism that takes an awesome game and makes it one of the best of its class and maybe one of the best war games ever. I just, I love El Grande. And I think that this mechanism is audacious and brilliant. And I think that more games would do well to have exciting moments like that. Well said. I do want to keep it about the mechanism, but I just have to share an anecdote because when we played it at Gamers Ranch, I got to show it to uh, Paul Solomon for the first time. And I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I will gladly do that. And he hated it. He was like, I don't know that he hated it, but he definitely felt like he was like board games have come so far in the past but yeah like and then yeah i know right you're rightfully shocked and then to make matters worse they were talking about how you know show me any game that takes 90 minutes to play and i'll show you a game that does it better in 20 minutes and then we sat down and played rumble nation as like their example of that and i just have to say absolutely not rumble nation does not hold a candle to the fantastic game that is El Grande. I'm so just dis- so this is Paul for people. I don't know if you said Paul's last name. This is Paul Sil- Solomon, designer of Honey Buzz. Paul, I know you're listening. What the heck? What the heck? All I have to say is you're entitled to your wrong <laughs> yeah. opinion, but dang, like, ah, <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. Everyone's entitled it, it, to their wrong. It was a, it, the game did go pretty long. We were playing with five players and uh, four new players. So, and I feel bad because I'm I'm basically brought. Carly on this podcast just to talk about all the games I played at Gamers Ranch while they were Without hosting me, yeah. games of Blood on the Clock Tower. Right. No, we, I played other games. <laughs> I, I, we only did two games of Clock Tower, and also Clock Tower is awesome in case anyone doesn't, hasn't played yet. I, I really want to try that at some point for sure. Who's next? Um, is it me? I know that Carly did a couple. Go for it. Just, just do one. I'll do the next one. It'll be exciting. All right, I'll do. Uh, I'll do one. I, I think I'm restoring the rightful order because carly done uh, i i, I inserted in myself yeah, a little you messed it up. i'm bringing order back to the force balance to the force i'm sorry it was relevant uh, in my defense no it was, perfect. It was a way <laughs> was smoother segue than this um, okay <laughs> please do. Keep the segue going my segue was it. like joyfully being like another bag builder and yours is like well now that carly was rude let's proceed Classic <laughs> i'm glad you said let's proceed because that brings me right to the next game on my list uh okay which is i was going to talk about uh one game that we did cover on this podcast previously it is a worker placement game and i think like the, this to me is an example of a game that really like succeeds on the strength of one singular mechanic more so than the other games on my list. Um, and this game really result, revolves around it. And that game is Raiders of the North Sea. And the mechanic that I love so much about this, which is just like so simple, so intuitive, and like feels like still like relatively unexplored ground in the board game space is the worker mechanic placement the worker placement mechanic where you place one worker on your turn and then you pick up another worker from a different space and i think 
like being like a bite-sized decision that still enables like a ton of uh, rich decision space to explore. And also the fact that it like forces you to plan ahead in a really significant way by knowing like what you're going to do on your next turn. Like it literally forces you into being a pre-planner, which makes the game just like click along at such a rapid pace. I have like a hard time thinking of like another mechanic that like does so many good things at once for a design. I just really, really love this mechanic. Yeah, and, and, and for people who don't know the game, the workers are different colors and you need certain workers for different actions. So it's not just I take one and I free up another space, which you are freeing up a space for someone else to use because a lot of them are like limited in spaces. You also, the one you're picking up, you get to do that action um, and you get to take it and it can affect the next action you're able to take. So there's that's why like it's so deep is because it's just workers, but they the way it combines in the limited space uh, is a really, really nifty thing. It also means you can't really fully block a space from someone because they can pick it up. They just can't pick up two things. So you can like think about that. It's just so cool. It's so cool. That's a good one. Different different colored workers might give you different rewards. So like the gray worker gives you two coins where the black worker gives you three coins. So just like, it's like really subtle, like little blocking things where, you know, it's like, oh, I really need a gray worker, but like, I don't want to have to take this like less efficient action place. And there's just so much fun, I think, decision making therein. This mechanic is so good that I would prefer, like, if there was another game that exists, I would just play that game for the mechanic. And I will play Raiders of the North Sea despite not really enjoying the game because I like this mechanic so much. <laughs> like this mechanic truly makes the game because I have so little interest in everything else happening in this game. But everything about the the pacing, the flow, the interconnecting decisions that you mentioned, Carly, it just, it literally, this might be the best example of, of the prompt yet because if you take this mechanic out, I'm so little, I have so little interest in this game. Like it's so forgettable, but this one mechanic, it makes the game. I, I too would True. like to see it explored more in different games. Yeah. Um, it's so Because the, yeah, the game, the game is good. I think it's a really good next level for like gateway gamers who are stepping yeah. up in a proper way. I never had like a true gateway game, but I feel like it'd be a good one if I'm like, I'm trying to get you into gaming to like, just show mm -hmm. you some of the decision potentials. Um, but it isn't one that I would like. Yeah. But I, I do love that mechanism. That is just dang good. I'm kind of with you guys too, in that like, it's not my like favorite game overall, but I think like on the strength of that and the fact that it's such a good like next step game like it's really approachable just overall like i think it's one of the games that i've had at least a couple of friends like buy after teaching it to them uh, which is always a good feeling i want to see this mechanic in a cooking game because i feel like the sensation that i get from the being in the flow of like exchanging workers in raiders of the north sea is sort of the same thing that i can get like when i'm vibing in the kitchen cooking this complex meal and like picking up and putting down different elements. And I just feel like it works Ooh, like so well. Like little ingredients. <laughs> exactly. And maybe you're sharing that kit. Oh, okay. That sounds yeah. cute. Sorry. Make it happen. I'll, I'll stop. But yeah. Like cooking in a tiny apartment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we are all yeah, there perfect. cooking different things. <laughs> yeah. Your yeah. workers are like spatulas and knives and exactly the pot. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. No, I like it. I look forward to your cooking game. Do y'all want to, do y'all want to go around maybe one more time? Do you have, do we have games left that we could do like a rapid fire round? I think we have about 10 minutes left. Sure. Yeah, let's do it. I'm down for All it. All right. Cool. Okay. My final game is going to be another card game and it's another small box card game. Um, so I'm bookending my, my games with small box card games, which are, you know, they capture my heart. Um, and this game 
I don't think this game actually functions without this mechanism. I think without this mechanism, the game is fundamentally broken. So in that sense, it makes the game. And with it, it's so awesome. It's on the most technical level. <laughs> yeah, it's so awesome and interesting. And I love playing it. It leads to really rich decisions. And that's the withdraw or concession mechanism in Airland and Sea. Oh, that's a really good example, yeah. So Airland and Sea is this dueling style card game in which each player has a small deck of cards um, and they're drawing a hand from a shared deck. And at any point in a given round, a player can withdraw. They can concede the hand and say, I know I'm not going to win this. Your cards are better than mine. You have bested me on the board and use your actions more cleverly. Uh, You win this round, but you're going to get fewer points because I've withdrawn early. So if you wait till the very end, your opponent will get six points for winning. But if you know from the outset that this is probably a lost hand, they only get two points uh, potentially. And then depending on how many cards are left in your hand when you withdraw, there's a range of points between there. And I think that this mechanic is just so good because it takes this core problem of the game. What if I just get dealt better cards than my opponent? Well, you could just concede and play again, bide your time and wait for a better hand. So it like pulls in these little elements of really classic games like poker, where the game is about sort of saying, I should wait for a better time to strike, which then matches the theme so well, which I don't love, but it works. Um, and then it also leads to these awesome moments where you can feel like a horrible fool for thinking that you had any chance of winning at all. And it also gives you a reason to maybe, if you're dealt a really strong hand, Try to figure out how to sandbag a little bit. You have the potential to play cards face down as just blank cards that have a flat value. Maybe if you're dealt a really strong hand, you want to milk your opponent for points and sort of pretend like you're losing and get them to commit a little bit later and a little bit later. Oh, it's so good. That mechanic for me is exactly the type of mechanic that makes the game. And when I think of Airland and Sea, I don't think about the awesome card play and the interesting combos uh, and how elegant all of it is. First, even though I think about those things, I think about this withdrawal mechanism and how it's this binding glue. Yeah. I mean, that's a great example. It's a very self-aware game in that way. And like what makes the game fun and like what hands will be fun. And it kind of gives you a way to be like, well, this one's not going to be, so let's move on. And that's, it's nice. It's nice. Yeah. Yeah. I love that it gives you permission to like, okay, no, let's get a really good match. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Or shall I pretend for a little bit? And that's also really fun. Yeah. I saw, I saw the shut up and sit down review. I think it was them and and their kind of takeaway about that specific mechanic being so good is like it's it makes everyone feel smart when it mm. happens. Like when somebody concedes, like if you win the round, you're like, yes, I feel great because I won points. And if you're the person conceding, like you're like tapping yourself on the back because like you've made such a smart decision uh, to concede when it was not going your way. And it's kind of like everybody wins, which is sort of rare to have in a round of a game. Yeah, uh, where where especially like a two-player competitive game that a round can end with both people feeling good. Pretty cool. Especially in- inherently some of the least like special rounds <laughs> can have like yeah. feel special yeah. <laughs> in a way. Right, totally. yeah. Jake, you should go next so Carly can be the grand finale. Oh, uh, the final word. Okay, so my last example, really quickly, thinking through this prompt, I thought about another game that I like that is kind of two things that I typically don't like in games. So I was trying to think like, what makes this game feel so special to me? And that is Eon's End. And I, as I already said in this podcast, I'm generally more favor, um, I generally favor competitive games more than cooperative games. And this is a cooperative game. And I really am not big on the deck building uh, 
genre in general, which uh, people who listen to this podcast know well. And this game is definitely solidly in both. And yet it's been one of my most played games of the year. It's, I've ac- absolutely fallen in love with this game over the past few months. Uh, my wife and I have played it a bunch. We've taught it to a bunch of friends and it's been a big hit with everybody. And I think the single mechanism uh, that makes this game sing for me is a really small part of the game. And it's that a uh, turn order is random. So you have a, a deck of cards. So you can play up to four people and basically the way it works is if you're playing a four player game, you have a deck of six cards, one, two, three, four, and then two of them are the nemesis card. So you shuffle them up for each round, flip it over. If it's the two, it's the person who has the number two who gets to go. If it's the nemesis card, then the big bad that you're fighting gets to take a turn. And that little, like so much of this game is known. I think most people who pick this would say the great thing about Eon's End is that when you you never shuffle, like the other famous thing about it is you never shuffle uh, your hand or your deck. You just flip it over and start drawing from it so you can like group powerful combos together and do all that. And that's nice too. But I think like it's the fact that you have like so much known information, like it's totally cooperative. You can talk through everything you have in your hand, everything you want to do and come up with like the best plan possible as a team. And everything is known except for the fact that you don't know who's going to get to go win. And like that element of intrigue, of randomness, of surprise leads to the best moments of the game where you're like, I feel like we're definitely going to win unless like the nemesis gets to go twice in a row right at the start of this last round, you know, or like, you know, something really bad's going to happen. Like we're going to be able to kill this like minion, you know, but we really need, you know, my Bridget to go because she has the spells queued up and you have like just like these tense moments of waiting to see if in fact Bridget will get to go before, you know, the minion and the uh, nemesis does some terrible thing that's going to devastate our game. And I think that intrigue offered by just the randomness of turn order makes that game sing in a way that it absolutely would not otherwise. That's awesome. I didn't know about the the potential for like reveal and turn order being exciting is really cool. Like whenever you can make the glue of a game, like something as fundamental as who goes next, exciting and a reveal, that's pretty cool. And to not have it get in the way because there's not other upkeep like shuffling your deck sounds really brilliant. I haven't played Aeon's End, but the more you talk about it, Jake, the more you like it. And also the more you talk about it, the more people aren't going to believe you don't like co-op deck building games <laughs> because apparently they're your bread and butter. It's all you talk about, guy. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, was this not the Roast Jake podcast? I thought we were talking about mechanisms that make the game, but whatever. Okay, so Carly, why don't you end this with a bang and give us your final game? That's a lot of pressure. I have no self-confidence, but I'll do my best. Um, Okay, so I actually, I'm going to combine two of them. I'm rejecting your prompt. (laughs) And... (laughs) And so I was trying to think when you gave me this prompt about two games that I've been really smitten with lately and not necessarily together, but I'm bringing them together now because of what my answer was and what made me like them so much, Um, like what mechanism made me like them so much. Because so I was thinking of Ark Nova and I was thinking of Anno 1800 
And they're very different games, but they're games that I have personally been just like a fiend for. I've talked online a lot about, I think I, I've sold over 130 copies of Anno 1800 on my recommendation alone <laughs> because I just wow. love it so much. It's so satisfying. And then Ark Nova has kind of been there too. I like broke down about this game the other day. But either way, I was trying to figure out why I like them so much them, like uh, mechanically, because I know thematically I can explain to you why it's so good. But I think for both of them, what it boils down to is... There's a bunch of mechanisms that go into both, for sure. But for me, it's the hand management and like the, basically the, so in Anno 1800, you're basically have an island and you're building up industries and you're trying to satisfy all your people's needs. Ark Nova, on the other hand, you're playing Zoo Tycoon <laughs> and you're building up a zoo, you're making enclosures and getting animals into them. You have animal cards as well as sponsors and other things in your hand. Um, and in both of these, you kind of are like planning for your own long-term like satisfaction that I think is what makes it really good for me with hand management. Like you, uh, in Ark Nova, you're more aggressively trying to like recruit cards, but in uh, Anno 1800, the game ends based on when you're able to satisfy all those cards. So how you do those things, they're different in their own right. But together, I think there's something satisfying about having a hand and being able to plan for it and strategize around it. Um, like I, I sit there with Ark Nova and half the time I'm like, I have this panda and just you wait, like just you wait till I like put this down and I'm making that enclosure and I'm getting ready for it. And like, I am hyped. And even, and in both games, I really like losing them because of this, because I have this like anticipation and growth and I have this like planning that I'm trying to do to get these things done. And there's like incremental satisfaction and in being able to resolve all those things. And that was a very long way of saying two different games and rejecting your prompt all around. But I do think it's like that anticipation you can get by trying to have like these goals on the outset of things to play that can be just so rewarding that was a lot of words Anno 1800 in particular i haven't played arc nova so i take your word for it when you say it's similar but they're like, not, in Anno, they're not can... that similar but they both have that <laughs> the promise fulfillment of looking yeah. at a card in your hand and just waiting because like anno really makes you wait like if you if you get dealt one of the you're like powerful like kind of end game cards towards the beginning like it's going to be a long time before like the technologies are available but you get to like incrementally to build up to towards it. it and you have your other yeah. people to satisfy along the way i'm just a feed for it i just like i get so hyped i'm like just you wait till i build this car just you wait <laughs> if i were to say my favorite mechanism from anno though i would have to say it's like probably my favorite like implementation of trading in any game ever which is that like you can trade for any resource that your opponent can build and they can't say no. I just okay. love that. I was going like to say, you just like, you're just like taking <laughs> with yeah. It's like, yes, I've completed a trade. I'm yeah. a big businessman over here. Trading in, in yeah. air quotes. <laughs> I, but to me, the reason I say that, that uh, the cards and those kind of things make the game is because they give you satisfaction along the way, but they also make it a game that I like to lose. Because like, I still feel like I'm making progress, even if I'm not able mm. to have like the best score. And I'm less focused on the points. and I'm more focused on the satisfaction um, for both of those games. The points are just like not in my head. They're not like concrete on a board right away. And I think there's something special about just like playing to satisfy. I totally agree. Uh, you know, with Anno, it's like the whole game originates around that starting hand you're dealt and like the path you pick yeah. to, to get to the difficult goals to fulfill it's a great game both of them are and they've been they've been hitting my table quite a lot i'm headed to dice tower east tomorrow and i'm, I'm bringing arc nova i'm gonna leave anno 1800 at home uh, i i brought it to the last con so we're gonna swap out <laughs> nice i haven't played either of these games but i'm so intrigued anno's one that comes up in these conversations about mechanisms a lot there's like a lot 
I think of novel things going on from Martin Wallace and that. And I haven't played Ark Nova either. Uh, you got it. Um, I think both games are actually I kind really of ugly. I like p- yeah. people argue with me. I think they're not appealing to look at. I I think uh, Ark Nova kind of is you tycoony and it's cool because it's animals, but it also kind of looks like a third grader with like clip art made it. I thought that too, and I feel like, but I think most people love the look of it. I, I think I'm it's, with you. I think it's ugly as sin, but I also <laughs> love it so much. And so I would just rather I want to acknowledge that you're going to look at these games and you're not going to be excited about these games. You're going to yeah. look at them and be like. Do I want to play it? Um, but both of them have slapped for me personally. And you don't know me, but uh, I would <laughs> endorse trying them at least once. Yeah, well, that, we appreciate your endorsement. And I think you're probably learning one thing about our podcast, which is that we don't really make a huge effort to stay up to date on the hotness. But yeah. Neither do I. People just tell me about things. And I'm like, oh, okay, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, given the chance. I, yeah, I, that was one of the ones I was sad that I didn't get a chance to play at Gamers Ranch. But next time for sure, if not before. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our discussion today. Uh, I just want to say, Carly, thanks one more time for coming on. Is there anything you want to kind of shout out or plug kind of at the last moments of the show? No pressure, but your the floor is yours. If um, you'd like to. Nothing in particular. Uh, I appreciate being here quite a bit. It's always a joy to talk to other people because that is quite literally why I made an Instagram was just to talk to other gamers. Um, so yeah, just thanks for having me. And I appreciate you both. I want to second Jake's thank you and say it's really nice meeting you, Carly, and everyone should follow Carly's Instagram. And like she said earlier, check out her YouTube channel as well. We'll put some links into the show notes of this podcast. Wait, Jake, what are we What are we covering next week? Living Forest? For all of our pre-planners out there. Uh, we could do Living Forest. Yeah, you're, kind of putting, you're putting me on the spot. Let's do it. Let's do it. We'll do Living Forest next week. I know. And then we said coming up, we've also got Isle of Cats on our agenda. We've been playing that together. And then further down the line, Blood Rage and Agricola. Those are just going to take some more plays to kind of get our heads around, I think, to, to do those games the justice that they deserve. So if you want to pre-plan with us, you can check out all those games. I think they're all on Board Game Arena. So they should be nice and accessible for you. Um, and as always, you know, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. We've got more links for you in our show notes. Uh, send us a review, all that stuff. And we want to thank Hembry, as always, for our intro and outro music. Reach out. Bye, y'all. Bye.